0: Okay, in part one, we looked at how Adam's sin caused spiritual blindness for the whole human race. And the Apostle Paul understood that if we are going to comprehend truth, then our spiritual eyes need to be opened. And so he would constantly pray for the believers. So it's not just for the unsaved that need their eyes to be opened, the spiritual eyes. But even for believers, he's praying for the church that our eyes will be spiritually opened to understand deeper things of God. And this is the prayer that I suggested Paul prayed and that we pray for ourselves. In Ephesians 1, 15 to 18, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so what is he praying? I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Revelation means you see things that the naked eye doesn't see. It's revealed. So that you may know Christ better. I pray that the eyes of your heart, so we all have two sets of eyes. One is the spiritual eyes, and other is the physical eyes. He's praying that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So, you know, so much God has provided for us, so much God has done for us, but unless the eyes of our heart, our spiritual eyes are open, we will not know fully what he has provided. We will not live in the good of all that he's accomplished for us. You know, when we are spiritually blind, the word of God is so dry and difficult to understand. But when God opens our spiritual eyes, reading the Bible is like nourishment. It edifies us, it builds us up, it strengthens us. And so if you're finding it difficult to understand God's word, understand what God is saying to you. Take this prayer, pray it for yourself. Even if you don't understand it, by faith keep praying it. And as you keep praying it and believing God, you will see change in your Christian life. Are you with me? How many of you really took this prayer and prayed it? Can I see your hands when I spoke about it the first time? About one? Only a few people. I urge you and encourage you. Okay, I'm not like the Apostle Paul who would pray consistently for you for your eyes to be opened. My name is not Paul. My name is Victor. But you can be your own Paul, and you can pray, and you can believe God. Can I hear an amen? amen. This is a game changer for you, for you to move from a place of a limited understanding to a greater understanding of God's goodness and, and favor over your life. Now in part two, we saw how Jesus sent the disciples out to go preach the gospel, cast out demons. They returned with great excitement. And I said, Master, you know, demons are obedient to us in your name. And then Jesus turned to them and said, Blessed are the eyes who can see what you have seen. And so it is a tremendous blessing when our spiritual eyes are open because we see things that normal people won't see. And God's mysteries... uh, now, this is just a throwaway. You notice that anything precious is hidden? Pearls are hidden deep down. Gold is hidden deep down. Everything that's precious is hidden, and it takes man's effort to get to that place to find it. But in, this, in God's kingdom, the precious things are hidden, not for us to live in ignorance, but it's hidden for us to search out Asking God, show us what is there, and God reveals it to us. We also saw in the second part, when God opens our spiritual eyes, we gain insight, foresight, and oversight. Insight helps us understand what God is doing in us. Foresight is understanding where God is leading us. The what is insight, the where is uh, foresight, and oversight helps us to understand God's sovereign plan over our lives. And so it's a tremendous blessing. Now, only God has insight, foresight, and oversight over our lives. And that's why we need to seek Him. Because when we seek God, He can reveal and show us things that is, that is not clearly seen by the naked eye. So this morning, we come to overcoming what is it that we need to do to overcome spiritual blindness? This is part three. The text for my, for my morning message is taken from 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll be doing a bit of a study this morning. Now, this apostle Peter introduces himself in verse 1 as a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. A slave is one who surrenders their will to their master. You can't become a slave overnight. You gradually grow to become a slave. And the apostle Paul says, I'm a slave. Just imagine, he's introducing himself to the congregation. I'm a slave, and I'm an apostle. An apostle is a messenger of God, or one sent by God. He says, I'm a slave, and an apostle to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have been granted the faith as precious as ours. Think about that for a moment. He's saying that through the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ, we've granted the same precious faith as the apostles had. Isn't that amazing? How did we get this faith? We didn't get by striving, but through the righteousness of God. There's a righteousness that comes by obeying the law, and there's a righteousness that comes by faith in Christ Jesus. And therefore, we are all declared righteous by God when we believe in Christ Jesus. Can I hear an amen? So, the apostle Peter is saying, through the righteousness of Christ, through his righteousness, not our righteousness, we all have received the same precious faith. And I like the way he puts it, precious faith, because he saw the outworking of his faith. He's the same precious faith as they have received, the apostles have received. was to make grace and peace be lavished on us or you as you grow in the rich knowledge of God and of Christ Jesus. So it's so nice the grace and the peace of God is lavished as we grow in knowledge of him. Now before we go further into seeing what the Apostle Peter has to say, I want, you to, I want to give you a background of his life. What is his uh, experience with God? We will look at the journey of faith that, the, that Peter went through from the time he started being a disciple of Christ till the time he ended his life. Very brief. Peter was the first one who had a revelation of Jesus Christ being the son of the living God. And Jesus commended him for it. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed it, but my Father in heaven has revealed it. First one. He was the first one that Jesus rebuked and said, get behind me, Satan. Peter was the only one who walked on water when Jesus said, come. Till today, nobody else has done it. Peter's done it. Let's give him credit for what he's done. He had the courage to step out when Jesus said, come. Before Jesus is dead, Jesus warned Peter, saying in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, Simon, Simon, whenever God calls your name twice, there is something for us to pay attention to. He says, pay attention. Satan has demanded to have you all to shift, sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Isn't it encouraging? Jesus is saying, this is Satan's agenda. He wants to sift all of you like wheat. But I am praying for you. Simon, that your faith may not fail. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So in spite of Jesus praying, he still failed. See, there is a responsibility that we have before God that not even the prayers of Jesus can make up for a lack of it. And so he prayed so that Peter's faith will not fail. And he said, when you repent and come back, you will strengthen the brethren. On the day of Pentecost, Peter was the first one who stood up, preached the first message, 3,000 people were saved. It was Peter who walked on the streets, and when his shadow fell on, on on people, they were healed miraculously. Outstanding miracles. Peter was the first one, who God spoke in a vision and said to go to Cornelius' house and preach to the Gentiles, first one. And when he was preaching, God interrupted his message and they they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And now he comes to the end of his life and he writes, urging Christians everywhere to grow and be fruitful in their walk with God so that they would not be spiritually blind and short-sighted. Now, this is not Peter in the early days. He's walked with God. He's seen a tangible experience, a tangible experience, uh, encounter with God. And now he's come to the last of his life. And he's urging us to grow, grow in our faith. Let me read for you verse 13 and 14 of 2 Peter. He says this Indeed, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, referring to his body, I, it, I consider it right to stir you up by way of a reminder since I know that my tabernacle will soon be removed because our Lord Jesus Christ revealed this to me. So, he says, God has already revealed how he's going to die and when he's going to die. Can you imagine the intimacy he had with God? He says, I know my, my end is coming. I will leave this tent in my body and go. But as long as I'm here, I'm going to stir you up in a way of reminder. Reminding us of what? Let's look at what what is so important that uh, that Peter keeps reminding us about. He tells us to be diligent in our Christian life by embracing seven qualities. And when we don't embrace these seven qualities, he warns us, saying that you will be spiritually blind and nearsighted. Nearsighted means you can only see this far. You have no foresight. You do not know where your life is going. So therefore, what I'm sharing you with, with you this morning is of absolute importance for you not only to be spiritually aware, Your eyes to be opened, but not to be unfruitful and unproductive in your Christian life. Seven qualities. Now let's look at verse 3 onwards. He says, I can pray this because his divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary for life and godliness. How? Through the rich knowledge of the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. He's praying from a place of faith, not from a place of unbelief. He's saying, "Lord, I can pray because according to God's divine power, he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. How? Through the rich knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's given us Now, through these things, verse 4, he has bestowed on us his precious and most magnificent promises so that by means of what was promised, you may become partakers of his divine nature, after escaping the worldly corruption that is produced by evil desires. So, he's reminding them, saying, that these precious, magnificent promises It's not for us to be more successful. It's not for us to be more healthy or more rich. He says, but these precious promises are given so that we can become partakers of his divine nature. Let me give you an example of how we can be partakers of His divine nature. Is God a forgiving God? Can I hear you? Is God a forgiving God? Every time we forgive someone, we're becoming partakers of His divine nature. Is God a loving and accepting God? Every time we love someone and accept someone, we're becoming partakers of His divine nature. Is God a merciful and a generous God? Now, you can go bit by bit concerning the character of God, and every time we display His character, we are partaking of His divine nature. And all of these promises of forgiveness and love one another, be hospitable, hospitable to one another, and more in all of these precious promises is so that we can be partakers of his divine nature. In verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. Can you shove the word add? Add. Now he's saying, make every effort to add to your faith. Now, we all receive a measure of faith when we are saved, some of us still stay there at saving faith, but he's saying, I want you to add to your faith. That means we're growing in faith. What is it that we add? We add excellence. Now when I say this word, or when the Bible says add, please don't go down the religious way and saying, oh, I must try, I must add this, I must add this. No. Remember that the righteousness of God is is available to us. It's by faith in God that we add these qualities. And it's important for us to know that. It's not by striving. It's by believing. By believing God, He adds these qualities to our lives. And the first quality is add to your faith excellence. Now... Uh, We aim to do a lot of things with excellence. Whether it's a conference, whether it's your company, whether it's things, we aim for excellence and it's a good thing. But this excellence is not about what we do, this excellence is about who we are with regards to moral character. And the American Version, uh, Standard Bible, talks about it. He says, can we aim for moral excellence? Can you slightly nudge your person and say, did you hear that? Did you hear that? You know, we are so caught up in doing, and we fail to be. And he says, you add to your faith, what? Moral excellence. Aim to be the most loving person. Aim to take on the divine nature of God. Be the most forgiving, more merciful, more generous, or more hospitable. Aim. He's saying, look, add to that faith your moral excellence. And then add to that excellence knowledge. So it's not knowledge before moral character. Moral character and then add knowledge. Now, when the Bible talks about knowledge, it's not just referring to intellectual knowledge. It's talking about knowledge on two levels. One level is what you know, and the second level is what you experience. Now, for example, when you were told not to touch the fire, that was knowledge in the head. Fire burns. But how many of you Put your finger in the fire knowingly or accident and then you really knew fire burns. Put your hand up. Now that's the knowledge that the Bible is talking about. Till the till we touch the fire, we don't know how hot it is. But once we experience how hot it is, don't, don't. You'll never touch it again. You don't need anyone to tell you not to touch it. You yourself will not touch it because you experience knowledge when someone told you don't touch it. And the Bible is talking about that kind of knowledge everything, everything in our Christian life is not only it revolves around our knowing and our experiencing. It's one thing to know we are forgiven. It's another thing to experience God's forgiveness. It's one thing to know you're loved and another thing to experience God's love. It's one thing to know that God is merciful and another thing is to be merciful and experience His mercy. And that's what the Bible is talking about. He says, add one to your faith, moral excellence, and the moral excellence must lead to an experiential knowledge, a knowledge of knowing and saying, yes, I know God loves me. Yes, I know God's forgiven me. Yes, I know I'm justified by God. Yes, I know that God is merciful because you know it here and you experience it in your heart. Jesus says this about knowledge. In Matthew chapter 7, we'll not get too deep into it, but we all know that um, parable about the wise man and the foolish man. Both had the same knowledge available, but one was wise and the other was foolish. The foolish man knew with his head, but didn't do anything about it. The wise man knew in his head and did something, and that's why Jesus commends him as a wise man. And he says, when you apply truth, no matter what the storms are, you will still stand firm. You're building a good foundation. 1 Timothy 4.16. Timothy is saying this, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Sometimes we watch our doctrine, but not our life. And very often, that's the case. We're more concerned with what we know than what we live. And here is an instruction, watch your life, and watch, uh, watch your doctrine and your life. Now, watching your life must also include watching doctrine. Both are important. You don't neglect one for the other. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So those in preaching the word, teaching the word, it's a solemn reminder to not only teach, but to uh, watch your life, which will save you and also the people who are listening to you. Now add to knowledge self-control. Self-control is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which helps us lead a godly life. The word self-control can be very uh, misleading because when you say self-control, you think you must control self. I don't know about you, but I know I can't control myself without the Holy Spirit. Any company? Do I have company here? And so if you want to try dieting, try dieting with the Holy Spirit. He'll give you self-control. I have experienced it. And I notice whether it is food, whether it's for fleshly desires or anything, it's the Holy Spirit that gives you the ability to self-control. And he says, add to moral knowledge, uh, excellence, moral uh, knowledge, and then moral moral, uh, knowledge, uh, you're looking at self-control. Now, uh, I'm going to read a few uh, sobering verses about what self-control actually uh, means. 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. Now, this is the Apostle Paul saying, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Have you ever watched closely the life of an athlete? It's amazing what sacrifices they go through. Every athlete who's has accomplished something, they go through severe discipline and a lot of self-control. He says they do to get a crown that will not last. It's only temporary. But we do to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run. He's giving himself as an example. I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to who? Can you say the word to who he strikes the blow? That's a very (laughs) weak response. Can I hear you say that again? To who does he strike a blow to? When last you discipline the desires of your flesh, he says, I strike my body. I give it a nice good blow. Very specific in which blow he, he uses. He says, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And you have many examples of people preach and they disqualify themselves. Why? They didn't discipline the body, their flesh. You know, we pamper our body. You just got to think of ice cream and you want that ice cream. You just think of something, and we are constantly feeding our desires, and all the promotions that come on your WhatsApp as well as mail, you deserve it. You deserve it. Buy. Buy. go out. You see shopping, 50% discount. Buy. And everything is about feeding our emotions, feeding our desires. But the Christian life calls us to live a balanced life. Live a balanced life. Don't go to a place of indulgence where you cross the line and you don't know what it is to live in self-control. Now, it says to self-control add a perseverance. Peter betrayed Jesus, but he didn't stay there. He persevered in his faith, and God used him. If you've been a Christian for some time, you would notice that without persevering, you never achieve anything. There will be temptations. There will be trials. There will be doubts. But he says, add to it perseverance. Persevere through it. Whether it is moral temptation or whether it's crisis, persevere. Perseverance is the ability to keep going, to stay focused, and to maintain a positive attitude even in the face of adversity, and that's what per- perseverance is. Don't give up. Don't give up. Whether it's a godly relationship, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your kids, whether it's people or temptation, don't give up. Persevere. Add to perseverance, godliness. There's a difference between being good and being godly. There are a lot of good people in this world. And they do a lot of good things. But godliness is doing something not because you're good, but because God is good. Your motivation of helping people, your motivation of generosity, your mo- motivation of kindness has nothing to do with your moral behavior, but it has to do with God's character, and that's godliness. That means, even when you don't feel like being kind, you need to be... Kind. Sunday morning, we know the right answers. Even when we don't feel like loving, what do you do? your love. Why? Because this is godliness. Godliness is governed by God. Whether it's your speech, attitude, or actions is what determines godliness. Your motivation is to please and honor God. In 1 Peter 2.21 says, for this you were called, this is our calling, Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, he committed no sin, Jesus committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, yet, 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 he was maligned. That means someone said things that were nasty. But he didn't get back, he didn't hit back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation. He didn't say, "You wait and see what I will do." You know, Jesus had all the power he had to to just say one word and knock people off. Remember the time during uh, his temptation, the soldiers came in. He says, "Whom seek ye?" and they all fell. They couldn't take him till he surrendered his will. He had the power, but that's what self control is. Self control saying, "I have the ability to do harm, but I will not do it because it's not godly." And here is an example that Jesus said. He said, though he was retaliate, though he he was insulted, he didn't retaliate. Though he suffered, he didn't threaten. But what did he do? Commit himself to God who judges righteously. What a perfect example of godliness. He didn't retaliate. He didn't threaten. He didn't, you know, uh, answer back not just because of who he is, but because of who his father is. Amen. Are you able to digest this? Here's what Psalm says, Psalm 4, 3. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when, he, when I call to him. And uh, I like this verse. Because it says, Know that those who uh, uh, that God sets apart, he, he picks you out from the crowd who are godly, and He says, It's for myself. He sets you apart for Himself as godly, that when you pray, He will answer. Now add to that godliness, brotherly affection. To brotherly affection, unselfish love. Because brotherly affection is just the filial kind of love, is the, is the you know, love which is friendly. But then add to that brotherly f- uh, love, unselfish love. You know, sin separates us from God and separated us from one another. But when we, are, when we come to Christ when only united with christ we are united with one another in 1 peter chapter 1 verse 22 it says you have purified your souls by obeying the truth in order to show sincere mutual love I'm going to read that again the reason why god called you from darkness to light the reason why your soul is purified is to obey the truth by showing sincere, mutual love. So love one another how? How do you love one another? With what? With a pure heart. Can we just say this together, please? Because we don't often dwell on these verses. Can you say, love one another earnestly? With a pure heart. What does it mean to love one another with a pure heart? That means you're not expecting anything in return. There is no hidden agenda. There is no, uh, you know, uh, collection after. I did this, and then so you do this for me. A pure heart is a heart that loves without expecting anything back. And he says, earnestly love. How uh, many of you are married yet? A lot of people married. You know, if we can practice this with our, with our spouse, just, no, husband and wife love. Brotherly love. And sincere uh, love. If you just practice, it'll solve it your marriage problem. If kids and parents, families can work it out. You know, by the way, the reason why God got you married is not for you to enjoy life. He got you married so that you'd be more holy when living to one with one another. I want to do this. I don't know when. Marriage was never meant for pleasure. It was meant for holiness. And if you don't become holy in your marriage, you'll go the opposite way, bitter. Uh-huh. So when you walked up the aisle and you thought, wow, it's going to be great, God says, yeah, it is great. Your time for sanctification has begun. (laughs) And the bells in heaven rang, ding, 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 ding. ding. (laughs) You know, (laughs) now this is not there in my agenda. It takes all of the seven qualities to work out a good marriage. (laughs) If you can work out relationships with these seven qualities, you'll survive anywhere in this world. But now I'm going to give you the advantage why the Apostle Peter thinks that is so essential that he keeps reminding them, keeps reminding them. Till he dies, he wants to remind them. There is a reason for it. But we will look on. Look forward. Agape love is sacrificial love. Agape love is what God so loved, he gave. Agape love is always giving. In a relationship, it must be based on giving, not getting. But we are so often in the in a relationship to get. And that's when it becomes perverted. That when, that's when a relationship is, a, is ungodly because our hearts are not pure. You know, nowadays you help someone and they look at you suspiciously. Why are you doing it? There must be some agenda. I hope you're not sitting here this morning. You can't accept someone doing something with no agenda. Can't accept it. Because all your life, the good you've received had an agenda. And here the Bible is teaching us something different. Love with brotherly love and also with earnest love, with a pure heart, unselfish love. In 1 John four twenty says, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his fellow Christian, he is a, the Bible said it, not me, because the one who does not love his fellow Christian, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And so there's an outworking of this knowledge we have. God loved us so that we can be partakers of his divine nature by demonstrating that love to the world around us. In other words, if we grow in these seven qualities, no, sorry, I missed uh, one, verse eight. You come back to verse eight. For if these things are really yours, seven qualities, and are continually increasing, they will keep you from being, what's the word? Can you say that again? What's the word? So he says if you keep these seven qualities, keep growing in them, it will keep you from becoming ineffective, and another word, unproductive, in your pursuit of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ more intimately. He gives us the incentive. You embrace these qualities. You keep growing in them. You will not be ineffective, and you will not be unproductive in just knowing Christ more intimately. And then he warns them. And we looked at that warning a little earlier, but we we'll look at it again from verse 9. But concerning the one who lacks such things, he is blind. Sad to say there are a lot of blind, spiritually blind Christians aimlessly going. And this blindness is not talking about physical blindness. It's talking about about spiritual blindness. He says he's blind. That is to say he's nearsighted since he has forgotten about the cleansing of his past sin. He's forgotten his salvation. He's forgotten that God has redeemed him and forgiven of his sin. He's always thinking of the next thing. What's short sighted. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to be sure of your calling and election. For by doing this, you will never, never stumble into sin. So, sir, if you're having a negative goal of what not to do, have a positive goal of what to become. And the more positive we are with regards to us displaying, becoming partakers of God's divine nature, the less opportunity for sin to creep into our lives. For thus, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. That means when we embrace these seven qualities and continue to walk in them, Not only we will will avoid stumbling, we will be productive, we will be effective, and it says there, when you go to eternity, there will be a rich welcome. I don't know how that rich welcome will be. Trumpets will be blowing, angels and saints will be cheering as we make our entrance into heaven. And Peter has a glimpse of it. He says, I'm going to leave this tabernacle. I'm going to die and I'm going to go. But until I die, I want to keep reminding you of this. There's a benefit in your Christian life here on earth. And there's a rich reward waiting for you. God to welcome us into his kingdom. Verse 12 to 15. Therefore, I intend to remind you consistently, of these things, even though you know them and are well established in the truth that you now have. So he says, you may get bored me preaching the same message. I must try preaching this message at least three times a year. He says, you know, though you know it, though I've said it, I'm going to constantly remind you of these things. Indeed, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, as long as I'm in this body, I consider it right to stir you up by way of a reminder, since I know that my tabernacle will soon be removed. His tent, you know, your, your body is, is the only one that perishes. Your spirit goes back to God. He says, because the Lord Jesus Christ revealed this to me indeed, I will also make every effort that after my departure. <laughs> You have a testimony of these things. That means I'll make sure when I go, I'll have someone to remind you of these things, a testimony to it. You know what I want to communicate to you this morning? How serious these seven qualities are. And if we can embrace these seven qualities, it will change the way we live, it will change our attitude to life, it will change the way we relate with people. And it will give us great insight into the things that God wants to do in us and through us. When we read this chapter, we understand two things. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. The sovereignty of God is God blesses us and bestowed upon us all these precious promises. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. That's the sovereignty of God. And then he says, it's our responsibility to add to that faith. You can't live a Christian life for 10 years based on your salvation experience. God expects us to grow in our Christian life, become mature so that we can fulfill his purposes. I would like you to, remind the, like you to write this down, or you can remember this. It is God who determines our destiny but it's our choice that we walk in it. Let me say that again. Maybe I'll pick that statement up again. God determines our destiny. Everyone's destiny, God determines it. But it's by choice we walk in it. And if you're not walking in God's destiny, it's because it's the choice you made. Jesus didn't want Peter to go through that temptation of being, uh, you know, um, tripped up by Satan. He says, Satan desires to do this, but I'm going to pray for you. But Peter had a responsibility to obey God, surrender to God, listen to what God is saying, or to make the mistake. He made the mistake, but he learned, he persevered. It's the same with all of us. If you really want to know your destiny, one thing is for God to reveal it to you. Another thing is to make the right choices. I'd like to sum up this message by reading out these seven qualities of, that we need to add to our faith. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly affection, and unselfish love. I would like to leave you with a question. Do we lack all of the above? Or do we lack some of the above? But it would be wise to look at those seven qualities and say, God, I lack in these qualities. Would you give me the grace? Would you help me? You learn to trust God and say, God, I cannot embrace perseverance. I cannot have self-control without you. I cannot have knowledge without you. And we give ourselves to praying and seeking God and trusting God so that His Spirit in us will enable us to work out these seven qualities in our life. Are you blessed this morning? I know it's a bit heavy, but I kept it for the last. The last two were trailers. Sweating your appetite and giving you the advantages. And I said, I'll I prepare the people before I tell them the, uh, the real deal. I found the seven qualities I found what Peter wrote very challenging, and for my life too. And so, I'd like us to all stand at this time. Thank you. Can you kindly lift hands and say, "Lord, impart that grace." Lord, impart that grace. Lord, we are all here with lifted hands before you. And we say, Lord, we cannot do this in ourselves. But thank you, according to your divine power and the righteousness that comes from you, you've given us the ability, Lord. we recipients. We trust you for transformation of life, Lord. And I pray, Spirit of God, would you envision us, Lord. Vision us for moral excellence, Lord. We focus so much of excellence in the world in what we do to impress people, but give us moral excellence to impress you and live for you, Lord. Pour out your spirit, Lord. Give us that heavenly vision and desire to conform to your divine nature. Give us the ability to know you, not just intellectually, but even experiencing, to be what you want us to be. Pour out your Spirit, Lord. Impart self-control. We come fast, Lord, our desires run ahead of us. Our appetite for things, the appetite for ungodliness. Come, Spirit of God, kill that appetite, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, Lord. Give us the grace to trust you. Give us the grace to give us the, the, to give us the ability to exercise self-control in the midst of temptation. Father, I pray, give us that ability to persevere, Lord. Pour out your spirit, Lord. You persevered, and because you persevered, not only in your earthly life, even at that, at the Garden of Gethsemane, you persevered, and today we are recipients because of your perseverance. Give us the ability to persevere so that we can be a blessing and a motivation to other people, Lord. Give us the ability to live a godly life, Lord that what we say, what we do, is not based on what others are or what they say and what they do, but impart that ability to live godly because you are godly. We do it because of you, Lord. Even when we don't feel like it, Lord, we will choose godliness above our feelings. We will choose godliness as our preference, Lord. And God, teach us what it is to walk in brotherly love and unselfish love, Lord. Teach us, Lord. Teach us what it is to sacrifice for the well-being of the other. We praise you. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.